Hey everyone, welcome to the BISCast. This episode focuses on some of Jesus' teachings between the triumphal entry and his Passover celebration with his disciples. And then we also talk about the significance of that Passover celebration, which has come to be known as the Lord's Supper or the Eucharist. And coming soon will be a podcast episode focused on Jesus' death and resurrection. Thanks for listening. There's a lot of arguments with sort of noted authorities in Jerusalem. Some of them kind of esoteric arguments that Jesus has. Part of it is they're coming and they're trying to catch him, trip him up, and then he shows his wisdom by having some clever responses to these. So one of them is the, should we give tax to Caesar? And they're trying to catch him, trip him up. And he looks at the coin and says, well, whose image is on it? And they say Caesar's. And he says, fine, give to Caesar what is Caesar's. And that's his, that just shows his wisdom. But it's not um, a teaching that there's a lot to do with, frankly. And there's some other ones about resurrection and a few others. And basically it shows Jesus's um, judgment upon, in this case, it's, the chief priests, the scribes, the elders, and the Pharisees. And that kind of sums up everybody with any kind of religious authority um, in Jerusalem, mainly. Um, all of them kind of get hit. If you look at Matthew, Mark, and Luke, um, they all get hit with something. The Pharisees, there's a long, like, Sure, you can listen to them and listen to their teachings. That's a little bit surprising. He says they sit on the seat of Moses, um, which is to say that they are authoritative interpreters of, the, uh, of our religious tradition. He said, but they're all a bunch of hypocrites, so don't do as they do. And then he goes on a long spiel about how hypocritical they are. So he kind of spends this relatively short amount of time in Jerusalem alienating himself and his movement from all of the religious authorities. And it's not really necessarily all his fault. They, they're coming to him and sort of challenging him. But also, he's not, overall, not being especially gracious towards them either. He's um, distancing himself and his movement from them. And a lot of, and I guess for me, a lot of it is somewhat esoteric, kind of unimportant teachings of Jesus, some of them, of these arguments. And then others of it is just serves to distance him and his movement from these other authorities within Jerusalem, all of which kind of makes sense if you know the ending as we do, which is that uh, alienating himself from all these power players within Jerusalem is likely to lead to problems like arrest, uh, which it does eventually, and then ultimately crucifixion. I guess the one thing I would note of Jesus that I find interesting, and this isn't just at the end of Jesus's life um, regarding his teachings and acts, but in general, he is credited by the people, according to the Gospels, of having teaching based on his own authority, not relying on some other 
um, religious authority to back up his teachings, which I think is, is noteworthy. I don't want to make too much of it, but I think it's noteworthy that Jesus is innovative and the crowds appreciate that he's innovative in comparison to the chief priests, scribes, elders, and the Pharisees, all of whom rely on some sort of received tradition, be it something they're saying has been handed down to the generations, that would be sort of the Pharisees. So if they have a teaching that's kind of innovative, they say, no, this is an oral tradition that's been passed down. You just haven't heard of it. And then the scribes and the chief priests, I would say, uh, are relying upon whatever written tradition exists at that time, something like the Old Testament, let's say. And it's basically their interpretations um, of those traditions. So they're basing their authority in the traditions of uh, the sacred written traditions. Jesus does some of that, but he seems pretty willing to innovate. And I think the crowd seem to like that. I think that's interesting as we think about our role now in the 21st century and what I think is a need to innovate. You know, can we look to Jesus and say he was innovative? He appreciated his religious tradition. He appreciated and argued with the people around him about his interpretations, but ultimately was willing to innovate when he thought necessary. What are your thoughts? I like that a lot. Uh, as you as you know, I think it's interesting that it feels to me that there's a balance with Jesus. I mean, at some points when you're talking about uh, washing your hands, uh, prayer, some of the prayer stuff, Jesus um, goes and says, "Look, your your traditions aren't as important as what the Scripture says," and the Scripture says this. And um, when it comes to like um, the Pharisees using tradition to avoid taking care of their parents, which I think is a big one. And Jesus says, look, you know, you, <clears throat> you talk about paying um, <clears throat> a vow in the, to the temple and, and therefore you can't take care of your parents. You're putting, you're using tradition as an excuse not to take care of your parents. So there's a balance there. I agree with you 100%, by the way, that he was innovative. I mean, our when we hiked from the north to the south, uh, Mom and I, we had a Jewish uh, non-religious guide named Amir who said, you know, Jesus is one of our own. What we appreciate about Jesus is he was fearless and he was a reformer. I found that really interesting coming from a non-religious Jew who was, by the way, very secular, and uh, but a great, great guy. I mean, good to be around. Another thing I want to add to these stories that I find interesting is the harshness in, in them. You know, like um, you have, uh, for example, um, the story of the wedding banquet in Matthew 22. And, and in, the, in the end of that, um, the king said to his attendant, bind them hand and foot, throw him into the outer darkness where there will be weeping and gnashing of teeth. The, um, 
the story of the wicked tenants, right? The one where, well, at, at the end of that, uh, he will put these wretches to a miserable death and lease the tenant, lease the land to, to someone else. The story of the uh, maids with the oil, you know, same kind of thing where in the end they're shut out. You know, they're not allowed in. Doesn't seem very gracious. Seems seems rather harsh. And um, so, I mean, there's this harshness to the end of Jesus's stories that we don't talk about. You know, we just kind of avoid them. We read them, but I've never heard preachers preach on it. You know, because it doesn't seem very gracious or loving. And by the way, when I've run across Jewish religious Jews, one of their arguments about Jesus' teaching style is it's not very Jewish <clears throat> because of that very fact that he's so harsh. Um, so I find it interesting that um, he comes off in many ways harsher than the Pharisees in how he views this, how this is all going to end. I don't know what to do with that, but it's, it's, always, it's always bothered me, you know. Um, so, I, you know, the other, other thing I was going to make about, and maybe you were going to go here, and if you were, about the fig tree story, you know. In Matthew, he, he's going up to the temple after the, the next day after Palm Sunday, after the triumphal entry, or whatever you want to call that, and sees a fig tree that doesn't have early figs on it. I mean, that's what that's really about. No early figs. They, they drop off later. Didn't have anything. And he curses it, and in Matthew, it dies immediately. In Mark, he curses it, goes up onto the temple. That's, then he cleanses the temple. Then he comes down and the tree is withered and he seems to draw comparison between the temple. But what I find most interesting is Luke doesn't have that story. Instead, Luke has a lesson about a fig tree. And he notes that, that you can tell that summer is coming when the fig tree gives leaf. And our teacher, Father Kamau, who was a native uh, of, um, Galilee, lived up in the far north, pointed out to us that the last of the fruit trees that gives leaf is the fig tree. And we've noticed that too many times when we've gone up to Ten Nations, Josh, in the spring. Remember, you'd see these fig trees bare because they're the last ones. So John, or Luke has a fig tree too, but it's they all seem to point to some sort of uh, event that's coming. Yeah, I think that, I mean, one sort of small note is that Luke tends to be, present Jesus in the softest tones, and Matthew tends to present Jesus in the harshest tones. And those stories um, about watchfulness um, that have that, those harsh endings, right? Or about the banquet, although Luke includes the banquet as well. Um, those are all from Matthew. And 
so it fits Matthew's tone is harshest all the way through. We, we think of Matthew as really being focused on righteousness, on right behavior, on that that's really what's key to getting into the kingdom of heaven, as it's called in Matthew. And Luke softens a lot of that stuff. And then Mark is just shorter, so he just doesn't have as many teachings and stories between triumphal entry and Lord's Supper as do uh, Luke and Matthew. I think one thing that maybe ties together a lot of what's happening in the, in the fig tree, right, fits as well, Matthew and Luke. I mean, Matthew and uh, Mark both have an actual fig tree. Um, it seems to be somehow representative or symbolic of the, the temple because it's around that incident. So the fig tree is not productive and the temple is somehow not productive. But it, it seems like that's, that's what's going on there. One thing that maybe ties it all together is just this really judgmental, dark feel towards the end there. I mean, there's a couple of bright spots. I mean, somebody comes up to Jesus and asks him the most important commandments, and he says, love the Lord your God and, and, and your neighbor is yourself. And the person who comes up to him is like, you've spoken right. And Jesus says, in one of them, I think it's Mark, um, you're not far from the kingdom. But really, that, that's a sort of bright spot in the midst of a really judgmental section in which Jesus is hard on the religious authorities, as I pointed out. And then, as you pointed out, there are these stories of like, if you don't get it just right, you're not going to get in the kingdom. And they seem too harsh. They just, if we're honest, that's just how they, they feel. Um, and it's all kind of... The other thing I think going on is it's all pointing towards being really, really vigilant. And and frankly, um, and this fits with this other little piece in there, which is confusing. I've always thought it's super confusing where Jesus talks to his disciples. They're like, what's it going to be like at the end? Give us some hints. And he goes on this discourse, it's usually called the little apocalypse because it's all these descriptions of, before the Son of Man returns, this is what it's going to look like. And he goes through these things. It's all real dark and quite negative. And um, all of that stuff, this emphasis on watchfulness, this little apocalypse describing to the disciples. And in that description, he says, this generation will not pass away before these things happen. It all leaves us kind of thinking, um, yeah, but we're living like 2,000 years later. And it hasn't happened. So what are we supposed to do with these watchfulness things? Like we're not all going to live anymore in this vigilant way, waiting every day and every hour to get it just right when the Son of Man returns, who we now um, believe to have been a reference to Jesus himself. So it, it just kind of falls, I think, for us on, on deaf ears because it sounds like Jesus was saying, this is something that's going to happen really soon. Uh, that fits with what he's been saying since the beginning of the Synoptic Gospels. And then it doesn't. It doesn't happen within a generation. That generation is long since gone and many after it. And those things have not taken place. Unless you interpret it really quite in a small way to say the destruction of the temple. And that's all Jesus was referring to, but 
it's not all he's referring to. He talks about the Son of Man returning and gathering the elect from the four um, winds or whatever the wording is there. Well, that surely hasn't happened. Um, so I think the honest truth is that we're hearing a, teachings about the end of the age from Jesus. And 2,000 years later, they sound both quite judgmental and also quite obviously not true or not applicable to our lives. Um, nobody can, and I would argue even should, try and live a constantly vigil, Jesus is going to come at any second, am I ready? So living in that kind of fear, I find both um, not practical and also not even fair to, to folks. I preached uh, at a church near here, near Holland, oh, a couple of years ago, I think. And I said, you know, I need to be honest with you. I don't expect Jesus to return in my lifetime, in my children's lifetime, in my grandchildren's lifetime. And I suspect most of you don't expect him, don't really, if you're honest, you don't expect him to come back either. And um, man, I got a, I got really what I would almost consider a violent response to that from people. And what I was trying to say is, so we need to stop looking to the heavens for Jesus to come and rescue us. Because <laughs> God's not going to come and rescue us. If we're going to reclaim this earth, we need to we need to get get going on that. We need to be a part of doing that. If we want to care for each other, if we want to end violent responses to uh, to conflict, all of this kind of thing, it's it's up to us with the help of the Holy Spirit. It's up to us to do these things. That was my point in there, and I I was just shocked and dismayed really because I've never been invited back to there. I got a cold response from the pastors there. I mean, frigid. And honestly, I think I'm right. My point is, I think I'm right. I don't think anybody there thinks Jesus is coming back in even their grandchildren or great-grandchildren's lifetime. And yet we, we can't give that up. We can't even, we're not even allowed. So I appreciate, Josh, the courage you have because you've You've given me courage to speak these things, and I've had others tell me the same thing. Pastors my age have said, hey, you know, the question Josh was asking, I've been asking these my whole career, and I just didn't dare ask them out loud. So I appreciate that your generation is starting to, to do that. So I want to kind of lead you into the, the next phase, and that's the understanding of... Um, the Eucharist or the Last Supper or communion, but could you give us just some historical background or some on what Passover, I don't mean the whole thing, but just so Sunday Jesus came came into the city on a donkey, and then we have these events in between, these teachings and these stories. John has the raising of Lazarus, but what's happening now, in the life of Judaism that week, 
in, you know, what's the culmination and what's happening. Just a short synopsis of that for us. So it's Passover. So you're celebrating um, the events of Exodus, the book of Exodus. And you have Passover lambs that people can bring um, or purchase as usually as families. And then those Passover lambs will be kept and then slaughtered at the temple. And then they take those lambs and they cook them um, in groups and uh, consume the Passover lamb. Um, Mainly, that's the event, and those are the particulars of the event that is being celebrated. And Jesus, apparently, um, also wants to participate in the Passover celebration. We don't know exactly the particulars of um, a Passover celebration feast. Um, Some have argued that there's some sort of Seder um, meaning like a liturgy that was followed. And there probably was something by the time um, Jesus was there that was followed. I mean, there's some cups there um, that are referred to when Jesus does his unique um, addition to their Passover celebration. Uh, But the particulars of what the Seder looked like in the time of Jesus is just not really known basically. So you can't speak with any authority about, you know, at what point in the Seder is Jesus doing X, Y, or Z. I I understand the um, temptation to do that. Um, Usually it's a temptation to sort of root out a, a hidden meaning or message within the Lord's Supper celebration that further um that gives further understanding to it um but it's it's not on solid footing to do so basically so you know for example we don't we can assume that there was a passover lamb at this meal with jesus and his disciples um but it's it doesn't appear in the text Right? There's no reference to the Passover lamb being in the meal, which is kind of interesting because we assume that Jesus in some way is making an analogy between him, his body and blood and maybe the Passover lamb. And yet he doesn't say, this is my flesh and use the Passover lamb. Rather, he uses bread, right? That's just a curiosity. If the Passover lamb was there and he wanted to make an analogy between himself and the Passover lamb, use the Passover lamb, right? And say, now this Passover lamb is symbolic of me and my body. And the blood of the Passover lamb um, is symbolic of my blood. doesn't do that. I mean, I don't know if that would have been weirder or not. you have to remember, and it's easy to forget as Christians, that just on its face, this is a really odd 
ritual that Jesus enacts where he wants people to symbolically eat his flesh and drink his blood. I think we lose track of how odd that is because we've done it all our lives. There is no way the disciples heard that and didn't think this is the weirdest thing I've ever done in my entire life. Perhaps. And I, I, I may be exaggerating for effect, but I don't, I don't know. If somebody did that to us now and we had no history uh, of Eucharist or Lord's Supper, we would think we were partaking in one of the weirdest events in our entire life and be, be right, I think. So just on that fact alone, it's really odd um, and unique what Jesus is doing here. And the Gospel of John notes it. Not, it doesn't have the actual Passover ceremony, but there's a part where Jesus said, if you don't eat my flesh and drink my blood, you have no part in me. And everybody's like, what in the world is this guy talking about? Holy cow. Right? So don't lose, don't lose track of that, I would say, is one thing I'd want to say to people. Secondly, um, ingestion of blood is prohibited within Judaism. Ingestion of any blood. Animal blood is not to be ingested. You're not to ingest blood, period. And then Jesus is not asking them to ingest his blood, but to symbolically do so. Also, um, so within the context of Judaism, there's a part of this ritual that is a surprise and must have been a surprise uh, to the disciples. Um, so I, I want to point out those oddities because it's so easy to forget about them. What Jesus is actually symbolizing in this event is unclear, ultimately. He talks about a new covenant. He does that when he talks about the blood. That means we don't seem to be in the realm of Jesus as Passover lamb territory anymore because the Passover lamb, right? This is the story in Exodus where it's the last plague that God sends upon Egypt as he's trying to get Pharaoh to release the Jewish people there called Hebrews at that time. And what happens is he says, I'm going to, um, kill all the firstborn um, sons of Egypt, including of the animals. And what they have to do, they being the Jewish people in Egypt, is they have to slaughter a lamb and put its blood on their doorpost. And then if the blood is there, um, this either it's, it's ambiguous in the text, whether it's God himself who's doing the killing or God sends some sort of destroyer, angel to do it when when god or the angel sees the blood god will pass over that house and so the jewish people and their um, animals and their sons are spared while the egyptians are not so that's the event that passover is celebrating and then if jesus is the passover lamb he is then protecting us from God's judgment. Um, but that, that seems to not be, even though this is happening during the Passover celebration, and it seems most obvious then that Jesus would be wanting to make an analogy to Passover, 
the texts we have about um, this event don't seem to support an analogy between Jesus, the Lord's Supper, and the Passover lamb. Um, they don't speak in those terms. I'll stop there for a second and see if you have any clarifications that I should add. No, I, it's really good. Thank you for that. I, only I just noticed as, as I was studying it a little bit this morning is that the difference in Matthew, Mark, and Luke in the language. So, you know, Matthew um, talks about, uh, when he talks about the cup, they both do about the same with take, eat, this is my body. They, they, they all three do that. Uh, I think it's Luke, I'm not sure though, that says do this in remembrance of me. And then Matthew is the one who includes with the, with the cup, he includes um, for the forgiveness of sins, poured out for many for the forgiveness of sins. Neither Mark nor Luke keep that in. And Mark, he goes immediately to where you were talking about before with the stories. There's some consistency here. Truly, I tell you, I will never again drink of the fruit of the vine until the day when I drink it new in the kingdom of God. So Jesus, even there, comes right back to what feels to me like uh, an understanding that this kingdom of God is going to be evident and imminent. And he's going to drink it again with them or with somebody and relatively soon. So whether he means post-resurrection, where he did eat and drink with them, if that's what he's talking about. And then we have to get into some kind of understanding. Well, then what does the kingdom look like then? And we've done all kinds of theological gymnastics with that. Um, myself included. So I do note those two things. I would say one other thing that I find interesting for what it's worth, and I don't know if it's worth much to be honest, but I, I've, over the years I've done a lot of thinking about the seven species, right? In Deuteronomy 8.8, 8, where you've got um, barley and wheat and olive oil and honey, which is date honey, and grapes, which is wine, pomegranates, and figs, right? And this is the festival of unleavened bread as well. So bread, would be, which would be unleavened bread, would be central to that celebration. But also, and here's the part that I think might be, might be interesting to think about, Josh, is when the temple is destroyed and the rabbinic the rabbis take over, the Pharisees, the rabbis take over. They establish that there has to be three things on every Shabbat table. Bread, wine, and light, olive oil. Those are the three central in the seven species. Now, honestly, I don't know what to make of that, but I find it interesting to think that Jesus is centering on bread and wine 
and that seems to be central to celebrations, festivals, and feasts, and Judaism. So it connects him, for me, it connects him with his religion base, the idea of bread and wine. Does that, I don't know, shoot that down if you want, make some sense out of that if you, what do you think of that? Yeah, the only thing I would say about that is that it does seem like the bread and the wine, using the bread and the wine connect it more to common shared meals, like a Shabbat meal, than it does anything in particular to the the Passover meal. Um, and then in uh, Christianity, it does become something you celebrate often. It, it's not a, you know, we don't do... And it wasn't true with the disciples either, it seems, or the early Christians. Or um, This wasn't something you just did once a year to remember Jesus, um, but you did it, you know, whenever you got together and that that was totally expected. So it does end up becoming something more common than Passover is. And so in that sense, I think the analogy um, is helpful. Um, turning to what this meal is supposed to be about. And you were getting at that a little bit when you were talking about some of the different language added around the cup. I'd say the answer for me even now is, I don't really know what it's about. Um, I I can see why people put it in a sacrificial context because it says pouring out the blood that is poured out and you pour out blood um, around the altar or sometimes even on the altar, usually around it and on the horns of the altar. And then Matthew adding for the forgiveness of sins, right? Seems to be pulling us further in that direction sacrifices and the forgiveness of sins were connected in some way. Um, it wasn't always clear how they were connected, but they were. Just to note that these authors of the Gospels are writing some, you know, 40, 50 years after this event happens. So I think what you're seeing is additions, probably, from communities that are working at understanding what Jesus was doing when he did this event with his disciples. Um, and so what Jesus actually said at them is a little bit hard to know. I would guess that for the forgiveness of sins was not in what Jesus originally said. And I would venture to say that even the poured out for many was not a part of what Jesus said. I would guess, and this fits with 1 Corinthians 11. So Paul has this, and that's the earliest text. So this is, that's sort of a weird thing to think about. But Paul writes earlier than the Gospels. He's writing, let's say, around 50 CE. And they're writing at the earliest, maybe 65 CE is Mark, if Mark writes before the destruction of the temple. Most think he writes after. But nobody disagrees with the fact that Paul's um, authentic letters are written before the Gospels. And Paul says, these are his words for 
this, and this is in 1 Corinthians 11, this is my body that is for you. Do this in remembrance of me. In the same way, he took the cup also after supper, saying, this cup is the new covenant in my blood. Do this as often as you drink it in remembrance of me. So no poured out for many, and certainly not poured out for many for the forgiveness of sins, which just leaves us with new covenant, and that's it. And you do get some talk in the uh, Old Testament about a new covenant. Mainly, you're looking at Jeremiah mentioning a new covenant where he says he's going to put a new heart, right, in, in Israel, speaking collectively. So then you're like, okay, so what is this new covenant? And what does it have to do with Jesus's death? And what does it have to do with the kingdom of God? Um, early on, you'd want to ask those things. And then 2,000 years later, you'd still want to ask those things and understand those things. What the early church did, or one of the things the early uh, church did, was think about Jesus's institution of this meal in sacrificial terms. Um, and that makes perfect sense. Um, their tradition, sacrifice was super important. Jesus, at least even with a new covenant and talking about blood and a new covenant, that was a sacrifice that you would give at a covenant ceremony was common. So you get this in Exodus. I believe it's Exodus 24. Um, so they're on solid ground there um, as they sort of search around for ways from their tradition to understand this new thing that Jesus did they think, well, the closest we have to what he's doing there is sacrificial language. So they start to use that. So Paul does that. Hebrews does that. Other places, even the gospel writers, it seems like, are attaching these little additions to what Jesus probably said and giving it this sacrificial connotation. And um, we've run with that. And even now, the main way in which I think we understand this meal this new ritual of Jesus is in sacrificial terms. And as we turn towards Jesus's death and understanding his death and resurrection, we have laid upon those events, lots of sacrificial imagery. Um, so I understand why uh, the, the earliest interpreters did that. I am not so um, enamored by thinking of them in those ways meaning thinking of them in the, in the sense of a sacrifice given to God for forgiveness um, or to somehow placate God's great anger. Um, those ideas don't hold much sway with me anymore, or, or I sh rather should say hold no sway with me anymore. But I understand why the early church um, went that direction. But that's getting ahead of ourselves. I think the last thing I'd say about the, the Lord's Supper is to say that that it is so different from the Passover event that they're celebrating, which is about God's great power in committing violent acts in order to redeem and save Israel. And instead... Jesus institutes this ritual around uh, brokenness, weakness, 
I think is really interesting. So I find it not as confirmation of the kind of God that is typically understood and thought of in Passover, which is mighty, violent, and that's the way this God saves. Rather, it is in some ways a refutation of that God. Because instead of intervening in a miraculous, violent way on behalf of Jesus, which is what the disciples are expecting, Jesus is, seems to be indicating that's not going to happen. And now, not only do, is that not going to happen, I want to give you a ritual in which you celebrate God not being violent, God not intervening, but rather celebrate your humanity, which means weakness, decay, and, and death. And find a way maybe to be comfortable with that aspect of being human and maybe try and reimagine what God is like and what God's values are. Thanks for listening and stay tuned for more episodes on Holy Week.